Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with my dear friend, Bishop Michael Curry, about his new book, which you must read, I've read it, entitled, Love is the Way, Love is the Way, Holding Onto Hope in Troubling Times. This is the book that I think uh, we all need to turn our attention to in these weeks ahead. And let me just say, Bishop Michael Curry, of royal wedding fame, is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States. Together with 20 other church elders, we launched Reclaiming Jesus, a movement to redefine the importance of the life and love of Jesus Christ, whom we follow amid our current political crisis. So my friend, thank you for joining us today, Bishop Curry. Oh, Jim, thank you for having me. You know, it's always a joy to be with you, brother. So, Michael, how is your spirit these days? in the middle of all this stuff going on. How, how's your spirit? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm praying deeply for, for our country and our world. I mean, just for a variety of reasons and that, that are pretty obvious, I suspect. And so I, I find myself praying more deeply for both the country and the world. You know, and some of this has been cracked open because of COVID-19, I suppose, for all of us, that we're all vulnerable some more than others, but we're all vulnerable and something's been cracked open. And But that's only one virus, the virus of white supremacy and racism that has been with us in this country. Well, it was kind of revealed and exposed in, I guess, in another way, and but pretty profoundly for this country and the virus of the divisions that are among us. And they're, they're, they're deep and, and painful and 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 potentially injurious to democracy itself. So you put all that together and and you have my spirit on the one hand being troubled, but on the other hand knowing and really believing that God's going to trouble the waters and help us to find a way to healing and find us maybe to the way to the beloved community. I'm I'm not an optimist. Well, I probably am by personality type. But I believe in God. And and God's will and way of love eventually, as a friend of mine always says, love's going to win. Mm-hmm. Well, as you uh, speak for a lot of us in saying we're troubled, but our friend John Lewis talked about getting in good trouble. And then you remind us that God could trouble the waters of these troubled times. And that's what we're hoping and praying for. So in the introduction to your book, You argue that we need a revival of love as the guide for living, a revival of love as the guide for living. Say more about what love means to you and its importance in these current times. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really do think we need a revival of love and a revival of love, of biblical love, of New Testament love, of love as you actually see in Jesus. This kind of love is not a, so much primarily a sentiment. It's a commitment. It's not primarily a feeling. It's a commitment to a way of life 
that actually seeks the good, the welfare, and the well-being of others as well as the self. It is a commitment to live as unselfishly as I can, to be a proponent and an advocate of unselfish, sacrificial way of living and existing, not only for myself, but for all of us. That kind of love, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the book he never finished, at least with a pen, his ethic, he finished it with his life. But in that book, he says, biblical love, the the love that Jesus is constantly talking about, that the word agape really kind of heads toward, biblical love is always cruciformed. It is is the shape of the cross. It is the shape of sacrifice, of unselfish living. Jesus didn't go to the cross for anything he could get out of it. He didn't go to get fame. He didn't go to get fortune. He didn't go to get anything. He went for the good and the well-being of others. We say in the church, he died for the salvation of others. He went for the good of others. That's love. And a revival of that way of love, which is a, becomes a, a spiritual discipline, it becomes a disposition, um, it becomes the center of gravity in my life. It's how Michael Curry lives his life, how we as a society live our lives. I know there are folk who say, no, no, love cannot be applied to society. That's hogwash. That's nonsense. Of course, love can be applied to a society. If it's not, we are really in trouble. And so if we predicate a life and existence and a social order and a global order on selfishness, then nobody's going to win because eventually we're all going to lose. It will be selfishness that will not fix our climate. It will be selfishness that will keep the poor poor and the rich rich. It will be selfishness that will, even if we get a vaccine, selfishness will make sure I get it first and everybody else can get it later. Selfishness is destructive. Um, Love is the opposite of selfishness. I mean, somebody asked me, what is the opposite of of love? It's not hate. Hate is a a derivative of the opposite. The opposite of love is self-centeredness, what the ancient writers called the hubris, that prideful self-will that makes me the center of the universe and everybody else is on the periphery. But Dr. King called the Copernic, the reverse Copernican revolution, where no, it's not the sun that's the center of the universe, it's Michael. And when I'm the center of the universe, then you, Jim, are on the periphery. And if you're on the periphery, you could be expendable. And that is not a way to form and build a world, a nation, a community, a family, a life. Selfish living. Well, Dr. King said it this way, we will either learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish together as fools. The choice is ours, chaos or community. I believe that we can choose community, that we can, if we choose the way of love, and it is a decision. It's a decision that must be made every day. I'm going to live a life that is committed Well, a revival of love then takes a clarification or a redefining of what love is. I think it's so crucial how you say love isn't a sentiment or a feeling because in this society, that's how it's viewed all the time. Rather, it's a commitment to a way of living, to a way of life. That's such an important distinction. In your book, you share the story of losing your mother at a young age. Grief and love were present throughout that experience. 
Could you share a message of comfort for the many people across this country and world who are grieving right now the loss of loved ones? More people than we can imagine. We all know somebody who's lost someone who's so close to them. You know, I, I uh, when uh, my mother had a cerebral hemorrhage um, and was in a coma for a year or so, a year plus, and, um, you know, I was a kid uh, middle in middle school at that point. Uh, and my sister was a little bit younger, uh, and and um, and it was it was tough on us as kids. But I realize now it had to be tough on my father. She had the cerebral hemorrhage in New York, and we lived in Buffalo, and and that meant they couldn't move her, and and so that meant my father had to um, you know we were on summer vacation and and we went back to Buffalo. He took us back to Buffalo to go to school. Um, and, and he was a parish pastor, a parish priest. And so he hit, he did church on, on kind of on the weekend, if you will. Um, and then took us to uh, a family in the church and we stayed with them, um, during the week. And then he drove from Buffalo back to New York, which was eight hours, um, drove on the thruway back to New York and was with mommy. And then he would come back on Wednesday and then we would go home and be with him and he would be basically home from Wednesday to Sunday or Thursday to Sunday, rather. Anyway, he did that for, that may have been for almost a year. I can't remember, but almost a year. I mean, I, I mean, when I think about that, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. And then finally they were able to bring her to Buffalo and, um, and brought her to Buffalo and she was in a nursing home because um, she was in a coma by that time and was existing only on a feeding tube. And so he had to live that existence. Well, what I realized when I was writing the book, and I really hadn't thought about it this way, I said, how did we survive that? Jim, we survived it because a community gathered around us. And I call it a community of love. I mean, they didn't use that language, but that's what they were doing. My grandmother at her at age 75 at that point, you know, just kind of turned around with her cane, walking on her cane and just kind of turned around and raised some more children the children of her, her daughter. And there was a family of uh, Dr. Mrs. Bullock, who we stayed with when daddy was, you know, in New York. My cousin Bill was just graduating from college and was looking for a job to teach. So he moved from, he lived in Ohio. He moved from Ohio to Buffalo. And so he was there. There were folk. What I realized was we were surrounded by a community of love. I mean, Ms. Erna Clark used to take us to school in the morning and she would pick us up. I mean, it was there was this community around us. And even when she finally died, I remember being at the cemetery, Jim, and it was, you know, this is Buffalo, New York, and this is January in Buffalo. Well, I mean, it's cold in, in Buffalo and a lot of snow. And I remember I started to cry. And Miss Bullock just kind of hugged me. And she had one of those old wool coats. I can still feel the wool of the coat. And she just hugged me, just kind of held me. And I remember crying and saying to her, it's cold, it's cold. I don't know that it was the cold of the air. It was the, you know, the old spiritual Jordan's River is chilly and cold. The chill of my body, but not my soul. I was feeling the coldness of death. That's what my mama was gone. Let me tell you something. We, we survived, not because we were particularly strong inside them. I mean, we had our own reservoirs, but because there was strength in a community. I am convinced that we have got to either find or create healthy 
loving, supportive community for us all. Your soul was cold yes. and it was a community that warmed your soul. That's very powerful. Your soul was cold and what war and there's a lot of cold souls in this country right now for lots of reasons. And what's going to warm our souls, you're saying not some abstract notion of love and sentiment, but a, a surrounding community where we really take care of each other. Yeah, love must be embodied. It's not this isn't just a nice idea. Now you're right of your grandmother. You you say, I'm convinced that she, like many in her generation, discovered the secret of living in spite of hardship, in spite of sickness, in spite of death, in spite of injustice, in spite of oppression, in spite of violence and abuse, and hooded night riders hiding under sheets and burning crosses. It's a powerful way to describe your grandmother. How might the spirit of resilience and faith and love be a guide for us amidst what you call these twin pandemics of COVID-19 and the racial reckoning of our country? You know, I, I tell you, that I, there's a chapter in the book that I never imagined writing because I had never thought about it before. And it revolves around my grandmother. One of my images of her is in the kitchen. And this probably was, this would have been during the time of that my mother was in a coma. And she was always around and she'd be in the kitchen cooking. And I can see her now standing at the sink with that little apron she used to wear. She used to wear the same apron. It used to drape off her one of her shoulders. And it used to, it's like always, it was always hanging off her shoulder. And she was in there cooking. And I really started thinking about how did this woman who lost a child in the war, who had one or two children die in birth um, and then later, uh, I mean, one one was a little bit older, I think, and and then had buried her husband, turned around and buried her daughter, my mother, grew up here in, I mean, in, in Raleigh now, but but here in the eastern part of North Carolina, in rural North Carolina, grew up a sharecropper's daughter, grew up granddaughter of slaves, grew up with, I think, a high school education, I think. I mean, how how did, how did this woman endure and not capitulate? And I I got to tell you, Jim, my faith came became real to me when I started to have when I found myself in college, turning around saying, "How did Grandma do this?" Here I was reading all the philosophy and theology and good stuff, and I was learning a whole lot in literature and in philosophy and religion. I mean, I was learning some stuff. I said, "But wait a minute, Grandma figured something out." And I don't know if she graduated from high school or not. What did she figure out? Well, and that's where the image of her in that kitchen, because she would make concoctions of meals that, I mean, would just warm the heart and soul and probably elevate the blood pressure too when we think about it now. But she could create this. And I realized that she was building on a tradition of, of how you cook. And, and, and I actually did a little bit of research into soul food and uh, Amir Baraka was the one who kind of coined that phrase, soul food. And that soul food had its origin in the cooking of slaves and in the cooking of slaves that was kind of a fusion of herbs and spices of African origin and herbs and spices that were of Native American indigenous origin. And they kind of brought all that stuff together and took what were leftovers because they were fed the leftovers. They didn't get the prime cuts. They got what was despised and rejected of men. And they took all that 
and they worked that together. And and they grandma used to say, I said, well, grandma, how'd y'all get through? She said, oh, we may do. And I realized that what she was doing with me, she said she may do. She was taking what was garbage and making gourmet. That's what we have to do in life. When you say in spite of, in spite of, in spite of, I was just thinking most people are always feeling that thing, that that hardship, that the hard thing, the thing they're dealing with. But you named all these things. And in spite of that thing, in spite of this, in spite of that, she learned the secret of living. So rather than starting what we're always starting with, what the in spite of is, (laughs) how do we start with in spite of, yeah, we're all going to have stuff. Particularly, your your grandma's story is archetypal of the story of the oppressed in this country. And yet, in spite of all that, she taught you the secret of living. That's extraordinary. You know, Jim, I mean, when I think about, again, you know, when you're a kid and when you're growing up through it, you're not paying attention to it. But when I looked back, like that old song says, I had to look back and wonder and say, oh, my God, I had no idea they were teaching me how to live. And, 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 you know, and she did, and I, and I'll tell you the secret now, you know, my father was, I, the nice thing about it, my father was an Episcopal priest. He grew up Baptist as did my mother and grandma was Baptist. Grandma was a dyed in the wool rock rib, North Carolina Baptist. No question about that. And, and uh, grandma wasn't a shouter, but she used to love to hear the shout. <laughs> she loved it when there was energy in church. <laughs> I mean, she did. And and I am convinced that that was also part of how she made do and therefore made new from old, took garbage and made gourmet. Um, I think she, in that church, when that preacher started preaching or the choir started singing, there was a moment when she was lifted up and, and almost transcended and found some energy for, that wasn't of this world, that was the energies of God. And and that was enough for her to to make it the next week and keep on making do and making something new. I love that phrase. How do we take the garbage in our lives and make it in the gourmet? There's a question. So the energy, now the energy, you brought that energy to the royal wedding service. I remember the powerful words you spoke, but the energy is something they weren't always used to in services like that. So how does this energy uh, keep us alive? Your grandmother speaks to what you said earlier. A uh, very important point. The opposite of love isn't hate, but selfishness. So you're right. To be selfish is to put yourself in the place of the sun, the whole universe revolving around you. And that selfishness is the most destructive force in all the co- cosmos. Selfishness is the most destructive force in all the cosmos. It's no surprise that self-interest is what drives our current politics and economics and is deeply ingrained in American society as part of our individualistic heritage. It's possible for us, is it possible, to transcend this American selfishness, which is so deeply part of our individualized consciousness? And if so, how? I do think it is, but but I think it does, and, and hear me for what I mean, I think it ultimately does require repentance. And I say this of myself too, because I'm a product of this culture too. I'm not, I'm not speaking from on high, but it does require the kind of repentance 
that acknowledges that, you know what? I've been trying to live my life on my terms and for myself and my family, me, mine, my, and, and, and to repent and turn and turn in the direction of a life that's not centered on me, that, that actually, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught us, puts Christ at the center and that learns to live not for self alone, but, but for the good of all. And that is a radical reorientation of my life. And I have to constantly, I got to go, I got to have an altar call every day to keep doing that because the selfish Michael always wants to move in. Now, I think that's a conversion of Christianity itself. Because, I mean, you know, when we're doing Reclaiming Jesus, one of the things we said is the church has been co-opted by the culture and by co-opted by the culture, by its politics, by its way of being and all of that to the point where Christ isn't at the center. His teachings are, the Beatitudes are not at the center. Um, the whole Sermon on the Mount's not at the center. The, the, the summary of the law of love is not at the center. Matthew 25 is not at the center. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not at the center. Center. The parable of the prodigal son is not at the center. The Jesus who died on the cross, not for himself, but for not at the center. The Jesus who said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. None of that's not at the center. What's at the center is what's in it for me. And when that happens, Christianity itself has been perverted. And we've seen too much of that where, where, where religion gets co-opted by political agendas, Left or right, I mean, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity. Um, left or right, co-opted by anybody's agenda except the agenda of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, then the church becomes complicit with evil or si by either being silent or by being active in justifying it. This is how, I mean, I, I was, uh, This I don't think I, this is actually in the book, Jim, but I, I was, uh, when I was Bishop of North Carolina and um, blessed for 15 years to be Bishop of North Carolina. And um, at some point, midway through, um, they gave me a sabbat three month sabbatical leave to kind of go away and study and spend some rest and study and that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I did was to actually spend time doing, re really studying the Sermon on the Mount. And Stanley Howell had published a, a theological commentary on Matthew's gospel. And I used his work and other classical works on the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, in the course of doing that, I pivoted for a variety of reasons and said, I want to see how did, um, if not the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, how did they play out in the debate uh, over slavery, pro and anti-slavery? And I started reading the apologists on both sides, uh, the uh, abolitionists on the one hand and those who argued pro-slavery. And I noticed a pattern. Those who argued pro-slavery avoided Jesus of Nazareth. You never see them talk about the Sermon on the Mount. You don't ever see them talk about anything that has to do with Jesus. They avoid Jesus like the plague and, and pick and choose and, and abuse the rest of scripture. But they avoid Jesus like the prayer. And those who were abolitionists, they went straight to the Sermon on the Mount. They went straight to do unto others as you would have them. They went straight to Matthew as you did it to the least of these um, who are my brothers and sisters, you have done it unto me. They went straight to Jesus. And I said, wait a minute, there it is. And our whole reclaiming Jesus effort was about reclaiming what Jesus did and what he taught what he stood for, that that's the soul of the church. No, well, that's, it's a Christianity we talked about. Remember we, how Christianity avoids Jesus. 
that the Christianity avoids Jesus. Uh, because if we go, did he say this? Did he mean it? <laughs> and if he did, what does that mean for us? Uh, that's, you know, I love the way you're talking about um, love that you said it can affect a society. You think it can affect a society. That love is not just around the edges. If we accept the selfishness, the self-interest of everything, then love just around the ed- ed- edges makes it all seem a little nicer. You're saying love can't be around the edges. It has to go to the heart of this self-centeredness, the self-interest, the selfishness, and transform that, not just on the edges, at the core, at the center, which is what Jesus said and did. Yeah. And when that, gosh, Jim, when that happens, everybody gets blessed. (laughs) Everybody gets blessed. Um, And and that was, you know, John Lewis... um, and and folk like him, if ever there was a Christian, we saw one in John Lewis. Um, you know, I mean, to have to be beaten and abused, and to still love that we don't have that power in ourselves. That that reflects the very energy of God's love flowing through us, and we saw that. And we've seen that. We saw that in John Lewis. He he just exemplified he, his life with a sermon. <laughs> sure was. Now, now, probably no one has noticed, but we're rapidly approaching Election Day. <laughs> and we're currently in the midst of this pandemic, along with peaceful but volatile protests sometimes across the U.S. And we have seen a president that is running on white grievance on fueling racial fear and hate and even violence. What do you think the way of love should look like for the church and the country leading to November 3rd? Well, you know, I really do think that, let me speak for as a Christian for start there. For those of us who are Christian, we must each decide in our conscience how we'll vote and no one can tell anyone else how to vote. And certainly I, as a, you know, head of a denomination, don't do that. What I can do and I, but I can do. And what I think we must do is do moral discernment and moral discernment grounded in what Jesus Christ, what he did and what he taught. And then I have to, I'll speak for myself. I have to evaluate for myself. What does this mean for me? What Jesus Christ did and what he taught. And I try to make all of my ethical and moral decisions grounded in, does this look like what Jesus meant when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? And, and that is the, that's the standard and norm by which I try to live my life, but try to live my uh, public life and my participation in the public square. And I think we as Christians have to do that. And I can't tell you or tell somebody else what that means for you or somebody else. But I can say that is the standard. There is a moral standard and we must make our discernments based on that. And so I think, you know, that that's that's probably as far as the churches can go individually. Um, but I do think we have to do moral discernment. I, I want our country, regardless of who the president is, or I want our country to be a country that really does live up to 
what we say in the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, one day, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, listen to this, with liberty and justice for all. I want, now I'm just speaking as Michael Curry now, I want America to be that. I was taught that as a child, as you were. I believe in liberty and justice for all. It doesn't say liberty and justice for some, but liberty and justice for all. Um, I want America to be the kind of America that reflects what Emma Lazarus wrote, uh, that poem on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I, I want America to be, you know, what what uh, the, the, the hymn, America the Beautiful, what it means, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. That, that That's what I want for the country where I live and for my children and my grandchildren and your children and your grandchildren, for every child. I want a country where every man, woman, and tri- child is treated as a child of God and by the law and by reality, where we care for each other and where we figure out how to iron out our problems and come up with solutions that may be bipartisan solutions, but come up with solutions that have the human good at heart. That's what I want for, for our country. And that reflects the values that I, that I hold and that I hold because for me, that's what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, everybody has to decide what that means in terms of their vote, but the moral point and I'm not saying, you know, and I have to say this, I, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and which was a, a Democratic city. Uh, the county in those days was Republican, but the city was Democratic. But the congressman that everybody remembers was Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp was a Republican. Now he was remembered because he was also quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. We can talk about the Bills later. But Jack Kemp, in the minds of people in Buffalo, was who people would go to when they needed help. Jack Kemp was a supply-side Republican, but he believed in a social conscience and believed that government could facilitate the betterment of our humanity. Now, he had a different way of doing it than his Democratic colleagues, but he was committed to that. And so he was able to do bipartisan work. I mean, that was at a time when that could happen in Congress. So I'm not bound by anybody's party. But I am bound by a certain moral perspective. And and so I would just ask Christians to take seriously what Jesus did and taught and then do your own moral discernment. And you must figure it out for you. Everybody must figure it out for themselves. But if you ask Michael Curry what kind of country I want, I want a, a country, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice, not for some. And the the whole issue of values, which you talk about in this book, can take us to that place. I remember in a similar way, the closest I was ever to a senator was was Mark Hatfield from Oregon, who was Christian, Republican, and uh, but he led the way in opposition to the war in Vietnam. He spoke out on hunger before almost anybody else. And 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 when values can bring people together across partisan lines, it's, it's, it's uh, the only way we're going to, instead of blaming each other, we, we point to solutions, as you mentioned. So Episcopal Church came up in, uh, in all this, this election campaigning, this incident when 
when the president tear-gassed a group of uh, Black Lives Matter protesters for a photo op in front of St. John's Church, which is a church that's one of yours, and Bishop Marion Buddy, who's a wonderful local leader here, Bishop, as leader in the Episcopal Church, uh, you were asked, what did you make of that moment? I mean, what did you make of a moment like that? And here you are being presiding bishop. All of a sudden people say, what does this mean? What what happened? How do we interpret something like this? What what did you make of that moment? Well, you know, I, I was, I mean, the, the, the first thing that, that hurt was that it was, um, this was a photo op and that the crowd was dispersed. I don't know whether it was tear gas or pepper. I don't know what it was, but it was something um, that that would 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 at least that hurt people's eyes. Uh, you know, there's some debate as to whether it was tear gas or what. But for a crowd of of peaceful protesters to be dispersed like that for a photo op, that that I that I think is is just wrong. Um, but 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 then to use the church background um, for a photo op for a political photo op. I don't care who had done it. If a Democratic president had done the same thing, I would have problems with it. Uh, that's using religion for political purposes. Um, and I don't agree with that for anybody. I don't believe that Jesus is not for sale. And and so I, I had real problems. And I said uh, in the press, and you know, I've gotten some criticism for it. I said, you know, I probably couldn't argue if the president had gone across the St. John's Church and asked the rector of the parish, can I come in and pray? I wouldn't have any problem with that. I wouldn't have problems with if he had gone over there, if he hadn't, you know, tear gassed the crowd um, and gone over and said, I know some of you disagree with me, um, but maybe there's one thing we can all agree about. We need to pray for our country. And if he had gone down on his knees and prayed for justice and us finding the right way and doing the right thing, and loving each other and prayed for the healing of our land. Who could object to that? You, you see what I'm saying? But that's not what happened. And so that what happened was well, using the church, trying to use the church for political purposes. And I object to that, whether a Democrat does it or a Republican does it. As you heard in my intro to this podcast, I say this is a podcast about how faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. And so I would say, you know, and so I, I and I said this in interviews and that kind of thing. I said, we must say, take what um, what St. Paul called a still more excellent way. Um, and I say this to all the parties. You must be motivated. We need our leaders to be motivated by an unselfish, sacrificial way of love that truly seeks the good and the well-being of American society, but not just American society, but of the world, the global community. That's what we need from you as leaders. We need you to represent the best of us, whoever you are. And 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 I pray, I pray, like you, I pray for um, the president, no matter who it is. Um, and for our leaders, uh, that they will lead in the ways of justice and truth, as Psalm 72 says, in justice, truth, and righteousness. In my endorsement of your book, which I read line by line, cover to cover, I said this, Michael Curry believes in love, not the kind of love that sidesteps and softens our response to the most brutal realities of our deepest racist economic and human oppression, but rather like Dr. King, and more importantly, like Jesus said, 
the kind of radical love that may be the only thing that can finally overcome such radical sin. Why do you believe in the power of radical love and how that only that kind of love can heal our many sins? Because only that kind of love goes beyond what Michael wants and what you want and what you put all of us to want to what we all really need. The truth is we were made. Have you ever thought about it? There's a reason it feels good when you know you're loved and you feel bad when you're not. There's a reason for that. We were made to be loved and to express and live love. And, and that doesn't, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to be pigeonholed into partisanship because that's narrowing it. That's what human beings are made for, to be loved and to love. I remember one time I was in a, uh, I don't know, I really don't know what caused it, Jim. Um, all I know is my daddy said to me, I was about 13 years old, so you can imagine, you know, almost a teenager. And whatever I said, or my father replied to me, he said, you know, the Lord didn't put you here just to consume the oxygen. <laughs> and, and you know, he didn't explain. In those days, folk didn't explain. They just blurted it out, whatever it was. But the more I think about that, there was a lot of wisdom in that. The Lord didn't put me here just to consume the oxygen, but part of my responsibility is to consume the oxygen. I mean, the process of photosynthesis means that I, as an animal, I inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. And the plant world, all the trees in the plant world, they uh, receive the carbon dioxide and they make oxygen, which says they give us what we need. We give them what they, in other words, we were made to both inhale and exhale, to both be loved and to love. That's why we're here. That's why it feels good to be loved and doesn't feel good not to be loved. Um, the reality is if we would stop playing games with each other, and just dare summon the courage to live out of love, then I'm here to tell you, Congress would work. They'd find ways to work together. They'd find ways to work together. Our government could work. We'd find ways. We wouldn't agree all the time. Good Lord, I've been married to my wife almost 40 years. I, I love my wife, but I know from the experience of being married for almost 40 years, love doesn't mean you agree. Love means I'm going to make room for you and you make room for me. And somehow out of doing that together, we become something greater than we ever could have been on our own. That's why your famous now royal wedding sermon, I think, uh, was so resonating with people. Because I remember we talked just before that. I told you a million people had signed this Reclaiming Jesus, had, had signed up for this thing. And you said, a million? I said, yeah, a million. And five million ultimately did. And you in that sermon, you did what a preacher is supposed to do. You talked to the couple about love. You didn't just give a speech to the world and the, all the royal stuff. You spoke to the couple sitting right there and you looked at them and they looked at you and you talked to them about what love means way beyond the sentiment and feeling that they were feeling at that time. And that's what we have to do. What does love mean? What does love mean for us right now? And that's so much deeper than just a feeling. That's, it is a commitment and a way of life. And so 
you know, it's what does love mean? Uh, love wins can't be this shallow thing where, oh, well, we know that we'll all love. And it, it defines our lives if we feel loved or not. And even even when opponents in the Senate and the House, sometimes, sometimes I've seen them look after and care for each other <laughs> when they lose somebody or, or something happens. And, and some of them reach out to each other in love. And, and it does change what people feel and what they think. And so, you know, how, how does love win? Only when we take it as deep as you're trying to take us in this book. It's really true, Jim, and it's hard. I mean, I, I remember, um, and with, this is in the book, at one point when the Anglican Communion was really a, a real crisis. And I was on the hot seat as a representative of the Episcopal, as the, the only representative in the room of the Episcopal Church. And 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 it was really a difficult, a difficult moment. I mean, this is around questions of human sexuality and all of that. And I remember having to pray that the and I and I finally said it to the archbishops that were in the room. And actually, I think the the speech is in the book. I said, you know something. I I know that many of you disagree with what we in the Episcopal Church have done. Um, in terms of the inclusion of LGBTQ um, Christians and and opening up up marriage to to all adults who are willing to make the commitments, I know that many of you disagree with us, but please know that that part of the reason we've done that is that we believe that that the love of God is real, and that the love that God has for people who are LGBTQ is the same love he has for people like me and you. And I just want you to know that you are my brothers. It was all, all men at that time. And I love you. And it's that same love that I have for my brothers and sisters who are gay and lesbian. And that love is bigger than our disagreement. I believe that. So how do we learn to have that love even in a time when we're no longer opponents in this country, we're enemies, we're made into enemies, not just opponents and those who disagree. So you talked about praying. I'm, I, I heard that story, praying to those archbishops with whom you and they disagreed. Could you offer a prayer for all of us now as we, as we look forward to these, this likely very polarized and angry and divisive time. We we may be indivisible in the pledge, but we're very divided right now. So maybe as a as a bishop, as a priest, you can offer a prayer for all of our listeners who are so needful of that kind of love in their lives, but also in their communities and also in their country. We need that now more than ever. So could you, Bishop, uh, offer us a prayer? Good and gracious God, we come before you knowing your goodness, knowing your power and might to save, and knowing the abundance and the depth of your love. We come before you asking for your help. We need your help. We need your help in our country here in the United States and in our world, this global community. Lord, help us to be what 
you want us to be. Help us to live the dream that you had when you first said, let there be anything else beside yourself. Help us to, to love as you each other as you love us. Help us to turn from our selfish ways, to turn toward you and to care for one another. Help us to correct and right wrongs and heal hurts. Help us to find our way through the fog of our own insecurities and our own self-centeredness. Help us to find the way to make sure that children don't go to bed hungry. Help us to find a way to make sure that every one of us is treated with the same love you have for us all, not only in our personal relationships, but in our social and political relationships as well. Lord, help us, help us to be your children Help us to be brothers and sisters and siblings to each other. Show our leaders that, that justice and compassion and finding the ways to peace. Help them find that this is the way of life and leadership. Help us to rise up and end the nightmare of hurt and harm and sin and evil and learn the dream of compassion and justice, of kindness, commitment to life and love. Heal us, Lord. Help us, Lord. And help us live by love. This we dare to pray. In the name of the King of Love, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Thank you, brother, for joining us today. Thank you, brother. Thank you. To hear more from Bishop Curry, follow him on Twitter at PB underscore Curry. PB, that means presiding bishop, underscore Curry for more Soul of the Nation updates. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you from the soul of the nation.